Greetings, podcast listeners. Last Sunday, Tony uh, and Billy, that's me, uh, and Robin Irisari led a but nature bike tour as part of the Bike Exploration Series, which is a partnership of Spoke Magazine, a local Philadelphia uh, cycling and other forms of transportation magazine, and Hidden City. We led a bike tour of the Tacony Creek Park, starting at the Olney Playground, at the edge of North Philly and Northeast Philly, for those who are looking on their maps. Uh, and then we rode through the Tacony Creek Park, stopping to, to look at some neat stuff and tell people about it. And then merging from the creek into what you might call the row house and then industrial cityscape of, again, this area that's sort of on the border between Northeast Philly and North Philly, and then stopping at a few stops on our way to the Delaware River, where we, we round up the tour at an osprey nest at General Pulaski Park. We didn't get to do a good job recording the introduction of the ride, funny enough. Um, also, was pretty windy, so Robin kicked it off with talking about the landscape, um, talking about how you know we have sort of this surrounding cityscape of streets and concrete and row houses, uh, and stores and, and old factories and whatnot. And then in the middle, you have this wooded corridor. Um, and so you can go sort of from that wooded corridor where you can't really tell you're in a city and pop right out and you're back in the city. I also talked about one of the, what I think of as one of the themes of the ride, um, which is that the entire area we were looking at is industrial or post-industrial landscape. Even the creek, uh, which, you know, is forest today with a nice creek running through it, all was logged probably several times in the past, uh, and had a series of mills on it um, back before we had um, other ways of powering industry. Um, so even if it all looks pretty natural today in one section, it looks very artificial in another, all of it you could count as some degree of post-industrial. Robin also gave an introduction to the Tucani Tacony frankfurt Watershed Partnership, which is the organization he works for, uh, and that works to protect this watershed and educate people about it. This is what Robin does for a living, actually, he is the um, outreach coordinator for Philadelphia for the watershed. Uh, and so um, the three of us led the ride, especially in the early parts. Um, Tony agreed to watch the bicycles um, when we walked away from them. Um, so you'll hear more of me and Robin talking. Uh, and with that, um, we'll kick into it. You're also going to hear the voice of Elliot, um, who is one of the, the rider, one of the younger riders, but a, a highly skilled birder, um, pointing out some birds along the way. And we hope you enjoy. And if you have any uh, interest in the TTF, the Tucane Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership, um, you'll see a link on uh, our website to them. Um, and also, we'll be tweeting out some pictures that Robin took while we were on the ride. And of course, if you do enjoy it, please go to your favorite podcasting platform, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is, and please rate us and leave some comments. That'll help other people find us and, and check out how awesome we are. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter at HerbWildlifeCast. Drop us an email to let us know how we're doing at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. And uh, if you see something cool where you are, please record a little note about it on your phone. And then you can um, you can then send us the file. We'd be happy to put it on as some wildlife bling. Um, or you can leave us a voicemail at 267-603-3219. Again, 267-603-3219. Thanks. I'll start off talking. We, we were um, Tony and I were interviewing 
Bertoni was interviewing um, the head of the American Birding Association, ABA. Um, we were talking about birds that people happen to see. Um, and he used an expression that we have since adopted because we love it, uh, called the unholy trio. Um, so if you're a birder, could you guess what the unholy trio would be? Um, the All right. European starling. Yep. There you go. Got it. Nailed it. All right. So, uh, pigeon, rock dove. So they're they're sort of they're they're all three of them are not native. Um, and I might stop and talk about starlings a little when we see them maybe. Um, but house sparrows, we got tons of them around us right now. Um, and so how these all have interesting stories, I think. Um, house sparrows, uh, they they sort of they start their association with humans, like maybe. 7,000 years ago or so. I mean, they, they started off as a as as a Eurasian species, but they're the the ones that are linked to us um, started off sort of piggybacking with people when we started farming. Uh, so about as far back as there's been agriculture, there have been house sparrows eating sort of the spilled grains and, and hitting our fields and stuff. Um, and they've recently been able to tell, I guess, that they that the ones that um, like these right here, the ones that live around cities and around farms and everything, around people, um, sort of have are, are, are a separate set from a wild type house sparrow that still lives um, around the Middle East and sort of, uh, yeah, around the Middle East, Mediterranean. Um, so these birds have been with us a very long time. It's hard to say when they look, it's hard to call them wild anywhere. Um, except for that one little remnant population that still sort of lives in the pre, pre-human associated way. Um, and they made it to the states very intentionally. Um, in the 1800s, as people were starting to, to plant um, trees, tree, like street trees, basically. Um, and so as people started intentionally planting trees in urban spaces, they were hit by various tree pests. So bugs, basically. Um, and so the sparrows were a solution to that. Um, they were released to try to, 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 try to eat bugs. Um, initially I was thinking, oh, what, how would that work? Because they mostly eat seeds, but they feed their babies um, a lot of bugs. Uh, and so they, I don't know, it was like thousands of them were released to Philadelphia um, to, try to, control, to try to control bugs. The unholy trio! Tacony, now they're into Cheltenham, you were saying? They're into Cheltenham. Um, so yeah, I, I was kind of curious whether they're coming from Headwaters too, from like up in the Sunnyside or something. So I don't think like so. They're coming up, yeah. Coming up, yeah. So again, they would have been, 
I mean, historically, like nearly wiped out uh, in our area of the country just by fur trapping. Um, and then, so I was, I was looking at some Fairmount Park records that were saying, yeah, like as of like, as of actually when they were surveying in the 90s, um, they weren't recording them here. Uh, the guy at the water department I talked to who had done the tree plantings was saying he grew up in the area and he would have seen them um, if they were here because he was a kid fishing in the creek and everything and doing everything. Um, so they seem like they're relatively recent. Um, they, and they make, it's, it's a fun topic, I think, because it makes for complicated land management. Um, so it, you might want to plant, like they did, like invest a lot of money in a whole bunch of nice oak trees to plant to reforest sections of a park with native species, right? Mm -hmm. But then you have a native species, the beavers, who have moved in and decide, no, those look like yummy oak trees, thank you very much, we'll take them. Um, and it sort of gets in the way of your, your, your far reforestation, your greening effort, and however much budget and time and effort as, a, as an agency you put into trying to do this plan for the, for the animals, and they had the ingratitude to, to eat all the trees. Um, so it makes for, and they, they can also be a, a challenging species to manage in a landscape in general. Um, <coughs> in a way, they're rivals, to, I mean, they have their own landscape management ideas. Um, they like to, there are problems in other cities, not here, um, but where beavers will try to block culverts um, or you can imagine one of them at some point deciding that the stormwater outflows, which we'll see a little bit, um, are too much running water, that has to stop. We're gonna take some logs and dam it up. Um, and so they'll, they'll dam up smaller streams and to, to build ponds, um, which in sort of a, a, a landscape that we're not managing um, is sort of a great natural function. It helps keep sort of the, the landscape, the, um, the habitat sort of turning over. Like you can go from uh, forest to pond to then marsh, and then you have succession of trees and stuff coming in, um, which is something that a lot of species around PA depend on. Um, but it doesn't work very well in a city <laughs> where we're sort of stuck to our sort of sort of static land uses in a way. Um, so they're a fun species that way. So I wanted to stop and point it out. Um, and someone is asking, uh, do they build dam? But do they build lodges? Um, and so in in larger waterways, what they tend to do is burrow into the bank. Um, so you won't see like a, a beaver lodge like you would out in the country in, on a smaller stream with like the entrance underwater and all that kind of thing. Um, so you, you will though, and they'll, and they're, they're shockingly, they're like this big before you get to the tail. They're really big animals. Um, and so really big rodents. Uh, so they're, they're something that when you see one in person, my reaction is like, what the, oh, you know, and then, and then they have that tail slapping thing when they're scared, which will just scare the crap out of you when they're, when they're when they get scared and they're about to dive they slap their tail really hard in the water and they dive um, so again it's like a shock to hear that and so it's it can be a little bit of an alarming experience um, but sort of fun urban thing and not something a lot of us expect to see in the city of Philadelphia how, how, often can you, how often can you see one in the wild I you spend more time out here than I do I don't you mean out, out here yeah yeah I mean I haven't seen them that much this season, but last year they were pretty active just about every time. You'd see either fresh stumps with fresh wood shavings all over the ground, or you'd see them swimming in the creek. We have we have some photos of them climbing up the, uh, there's a stormwater outfall just up across the bank here. And I've been in the creek in waders when we were doing the muscle, the freshwater muscle work here and had one swim past them. The freshwater muscle stuff is a fun story. Um, I'll talk about it generally, and then you talk about the effort. Yeah, you so want to move closer to the bank? Yeah, cool. Let's go. If you didn't get a look, there's the, there's the beaver stump here on the I'll elderberry. Down. One yeah. of the interesting things too is that what's happening is we have a lot of regrowth. This is called coppicing when you cut the main growth yeah. and it re-sprouts. 
that doesn't move at all. Um, it has to stay put. Uh, in the ocean, you know, they'll, they'll breed, the larvae will come out free swimming and then settle down on some rock somewhere and then become a filter feeding um, uh, organism that doesn't move at all the rest of its life. Um, then the challenge though with, fresh, with running water is how do the larvae get upstream? So if you're like something that's like, this, like a speck of dust, um, how, do you, how do you fight the current? And the answer is you don't, you hitch a ride on a fish. And so the basic breeding strategy, if you can call it a strategy of, the, of mussels, of freshwater mussels is to get, hitch a ride on the gills of a fish um, and then drop off when that fish swims further upstream. Uh, so then when it comes to conservation, one of the, I mean, you can imagine water quality matters to them. Um, but the other thing is dams. So a lot of the waterways in, the, in Eastern North America not just like really big dams like we think of like for, hyd for hydropower or something like that, um, but little dams, I mean this counts as a little, kind of a dam right there. Um, I mean there are, and a lot of old dams that were for mills that are no longer there anymore. Um, and so you have a whole lot of dams uh, that keep fish that would migrate, it, that, would, that would go from the ocean to breed in freshwater. They can't make it upstream, and so the mussels are also limited from being able to repopulate upper reaches of waterways. Um, so there's a, a really active effort um, led by the Partnership for the Delaware, es Delaware Estuary um, of, of cataloging where rare species of mussels are in our area, and then um, sort of planting them upstream to sort of re get them going again. These ones in particular, Robin was telling me, hitch a ride on eels, American, American eels, which have sort of a reverse breeding strategy compared to like shad or herring or, or, or salmon people are familiar with. Um, American eels live their lives, their adult lives usually, some of them live in estuary areas, but a lot of them in streams, right? Um, and then they, they leave and go to breed in the Sargasso Sea in the Atlantic. <coughs> so, and then somehow, and this is the really fun part, their babies then find their way back up into streams. And so it's one thing if you're like, you start off as a baby, a little lar larval fish, make it out of the stream and then remember where you were before, right? It's another thing if you never were there in the first place. So it's one of the more amazing animal migrations on earth. And, and how big is the, e the American eel? So they, they can be swimming. You can get them as thick as your wrist and, and we've had some seen all the way up into the headwaters. And the eels are, I mean, these, these mussels don't have it like, because eels can like crawl up onto land a little bit when it's wet and get around barriers. There's a small dam, like an old mill dam. They can behave pretty snake-like and come out and get around that stuff. Well, yeah. so one of the things that, with the partnership for the Delaware Estuary that we got to do was um, try <coughs> planting a few of these um, freshwater mussels. The Elliptio complanata, um, which is uh, it's about three, four inches at adult size. We basically planted them like tulip bulbs into the bank. You leave them a little exposed and they do the rest, kind of secure themselves in. You tuck them in and you see them kind of wriggle down. It, it may take a while for them to get secured, but um, the freshwater mussels are really great for streams because they are filter feeders. And some of these species can clean something like 50 gallons of water a day that passes through them. And they're just trying to eat, but they're actually at the same time picking up um, sediment and other stuff that's going through the creek. So when you have mussels, you tend to have, you can tend to have cleaner creeks. Uh, they were testing this area as maybe a trial site to see, for one thing, 
they had us looking to see if there were any established mussels uh, to begin with. We weren't, we weren't able to find any. Then what they did, they transplanted about 25 here and 25 at another spot downstream um, to see if they could thrive and maybe that would be like the canary in the coal mine. Could you have a population and you know, play around with reintroducing them here? Um, every mussel that was planted, we actually got to help epoxy a little transmitter onto a little a little chip basically so their researchers would come back out and with essentially what's a metal detector they could come back and ping these things and find them and determine if they were still there maybe they'd moved and washed out a little bit one of the challenges that our creek faces is that we're in a combined sewer overflow area so when we have big storms the water that hits the streets flows into the same pipes that our toilets and home drains flush into uh, the way that it's designed uh, has it that if it's a big enough storm, those pipes can fill to capacity and if there weren't some kind of overflow, it would max out the treatment plant at the end of the line. So to prevent that from happening, there's a built-in overflow system where sometimes we have these discharges during heavy rains and we have water come roaring out of one of these combined sewer outfalls. don't taste very good um, and you don't want to eat a filter feeder that's been filtering this water for 70 years right. yeah. along with the, the just the physical force of the water when you have a, a major we have a lot of water running off at impervious surfaces you get all the all the pollutants that are on those surfaces um, so if that's old like oil from people changing their oil or whatever else is on the on the street gets washed in also you have a big temperature flux so um, especially if it's a warm day out all of a sudden the water gets a lot warmer. And so the temperature might be a problem in and of itself, but also warmer water holds oxygen, holds less oxygen. Um, and so when you have a lot of rain on a warm day, and especially with smaller waterways, um, the, the, you know, the pollution, but also the temperature will pop up and the oxygen levels will crash. Um, and so there are a lot of species of fish, invertebrates, salamanders, you name it, that can't take that combination of, of insults. Um, and so those are, so you'll see sort of declining diversity in streams as the watershed around them gets more um, impervious. And so I'm using this as a hook to green, to, to, to green city, clean water. So that instead of, so the, the EPA doesn't like it when we have, um, when we discharge raw sewage into the rivers, go figure. Yeah. Um, so uh, the city, what, three or four years ago, struck five a deal, five now, struck a deal um, so that we, so to give us time before we have to rip out every sewer line in the city and replace them, um, why don't we try making the city uh, more permeable? 
So you'll see a lot of, you'll see a rain garden we're going to see later on. Um, you see efforts to get people to put in rain barrels, uh, to, to, to do these bump outs along streets to catch more water before it flows out. Um, and all that is, A, it's a good thing to do for the waterways and the animals and everything else. It's also something that good for the EPA to try to, 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 to forestall stronger action um, that would be really expensive for the city. The idea is the more water that we can intercept at the street level and get into the ground or into these gardens, that's more water that we're able to keep from overflowing those pipes. We just rode up this wow. little hill here. If you look back and look at it, this little hill is actually a buried pipe. It's a buried sewer pipe that we're standing on top of now. Yeah. When you come Big down culvert. here and look back, you'll see what this, what this actually looks like here. Because you look back at this stormwater outfall. Like we were saying, when that when you have these big storms, this water builds up in the pipes and comes flushing out of here, literally flushing, <laughs> whatever was flushed, um, and dumping out and just rocketing into the creek here. The water can crest up to, you can see behind the wall here, and kind of line where the stone is. The stone is like that because the currents up here are just pulling and pulling this away. This entire floodplain behind us is usually something like bottle swamp. Because what happens is all the trash that's floating down the creek, we've got this big swirling eddy in here. And then when the waters recede, it drops all the bottles here. So once a month, we have a crew from Power Corps come out and help us clean up at these outfalls. There's some mulberries in here, so the birds really love the mulberries. This is a spot here where it's one of the deepest spots along the park, along the creek, and it opens up. So this is a spot where we get a lot of turtles and frogs. It's one of the spots where people like to come and dump their pet turtles. So yeah, I'll mention that. So the first, I was trying to—I heard we can get a little. Yeah, let's go for them. When we were walking up, I had heard a bullfrog, but I haven't heard it since we got closer. Um, so Robin just pointed out a turtle head, which we'll keep an eye out for another one. So we've got, I think Robin has seen, if I remember, you got snap, you've seen snappers and red bellies. So we have a, a couple native species of turtles that you'll see in here. Um, snapping turtles, which, where's the bullfrog? Um, so do you see that little stretch of land? Yeah. It's at the tip, this little, um, point where it comes up. You see like that strip of land, like, the sandbar kind of thing? There's a little, oh yeah, there's a bullfrog. Alright, so we have a good fix on a bullfrog, guys. So bullfrogs named because of their call, which sometimes gets written out. It's, it's, it's always funny to see how people write out bird calls or frog calls, but jug a rum. Um, but it's sort of this deep rum, rum. So if you hear it... Yeah, let's see. Where is it? Um, no, on, on, you, you see the land? The it's a little sandbar. Oh my, it's a big oh, one, yeah. Big one. Yeah. Alright, so does anybody need to take one take a look at binoculars? You got a few floating around. Okay. So there's like a little, call it a sandbar, a silt bar, right there. 
and on the right side of it, there's a bullfrog sitting there. That is a, that is a decent sized frog. Um, but we can see it with the naked eye right there. It just looks like a green bump where the, at the end of that little sandbar thingy. Um, so bullfrogs, they, they'll take a, over a year to go from, from tadpole to, to adult size. They'll sort of, um, they'll get laid as eggs in the summer. Um, and then they'll, the tadpoles will make it through the winter and then the next spring or summer like metamorphize, grow legs and, and hop out of the water. Um, on the turtle side of things, we've got snapping turtles and uh, which are, I think everybody knows what a snapping turtle looks like. Right, okay. Um, Robin got pictures of one probably coming up to lay eggs um, uh, just last week. Uh, last week. And then um, occasionally they'll spot red belly turtles, which are protected in Pennsylvania, um, mainly because we're at the edge of the range. They're pretty common south of here um, in New Jersey. Um, and that, and those look like, if you think of like a basic basking turtle, they're just, they're one of those. And if you have a, have a question about it, the, the really big ones that look like they're kind of black, um, that can be a big female red belly turtle. Um, but the turtles you see the most around Philadelphia are something called a red-eared slider. Um, so if you think of the little green turtles that are sometimes sold as pets with a red striped on the head, um, those are red-eared sliders. They start off like that big and the females can get to be about that big. Um, so a decent sized turtle. If you go to Greensgrove Farm actually, um, not too far from here, buy plants, whatever, they have like a, a, a big uh, cattle tank or, or um, livestock tank filled with uh, water and they've got a few uh, red-eared sliders in there. Um, but oh, really, right what are you saying? Oh, you're right, he's right there. Good eye, man. Okay. Yeah, at the end of the stick, right there. Very good shot. We have a bullfrog. Try to take a picture of that guy. Um, the, the red-eared sliders, they're native to the middle part of the country, sort of the Mississippi watershed for the most part. Um, and uh, because they're commonly sold as pets and because they get way too big to keep in an aquarium, um, unless you have a massive aquarium, they tend to get dumped out um, into water. People are like, okay, it's too big to be a pet. I'll release it into the wild, um, which doesn't work so well. Probably most of them that get released die. Um, so maybe let's say 90% probably die because uh, they don't know where to hibernate. They don't know where the food is. It might not actually be a, a perfect spot for turtles, but let's say 10%, 5% survive. There's still a lot of them getting dumped, but that's enough to have established breeding populations. Um, so they're all over Philadelphia. Uh, I was um, looking into an area in, in Buenos Aires in, in Argentina, and they've got a problem with sort of exotic red-eared sliders pushing out the native sliders. Um, they're sort of a problem species in Europe and East Asia. You go to San Francisco where they're nowhere near native out there. You got them in Golden Gate Park. Um, you just have red-eared sliders everywhere, and it's a bit of a mess. Exotic invasive. So I'll talk about uh, two kinds of trees. I'll start off with, with the short part. That's a black locust right there. Um, I like talking about them because they're one of my favorite trees. Uh, they're, why are they your favorite tree? Okay, so they're, um, you can think of them as both a native and invasive species depending how you think about it. They're North American, they're native to the Southern Appalachians. Um, but they're a kind of tree that 
is um, that the wood is incredibly useful. It's very, I mean, you like to carve wood. It's, 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 uh, it's what is it, pretty dense. It's, it resists rot. Yeah. They say it rots one day before stone. So you can build fence. It was used to be like really popular for fence posts. Um, there's a spot in the Wissahickon where I remember floods like probably eight years ago washed out um, uh, some of the trail and then someone took a downed black locust tree and they used it to rebuild the, the railings for like this steep section of trail. Um, and they are, they are totally exotic in Europe, um, but they're widespread. And so they, there's a whole, in, in Europe they've gone way beyond us in this kind of study of, of, of uh, post-human landscapes, of what you, what you call ruderal, which means the, the study of ruins. Um, so what kind of plants and animals inhabit ruins? And so um, post-World War II, in a lot of, like, let's say Berlin, for example, um, in a lot of the bombed out areas, uh, you know, the, they'd had black locusts there before, but then they really sort of took over. Um, and so in, in other parts of the world, uh, in Europe, um, sort of post-war, sort of black locusts are sort of a post-war tree. Um, and here, there's sort of a remnant of people planting them intentionally uh, because they were useful for wood, and then sort of spreading out from there. And then right in front of us is a, what, do you know what kind of ash tree it is? I'm bad at telling you part. Green or white? It's green. Usually down by water, it's green. Okay. So this is a green ash tree. What's, what kind of... Was that woodpecker hopping up? Oh, we have fun birds too, but... Um, There's a Baltimore Oriole nest that everybody should look at. Where is the Baltimore Oriole nest? So, if you look down, down like in... Okay. Which so, tree is it in? You see that bird that just flew right out? That's a yeah. Baltimore There's Oriole. There's an Oriole coming out of a nest that's probably hanging where I can't see it. No, if you, if you come right here... So there's that, is that the ash tree you're talking about? Yeah, this ash tree right in front of us so with the scar in it. So drooping leaves, if you just scan the lower part of the, of the branches, it's right there. Okay, so I'll talk about the ash trees. Some of us will look at the Orioles in the ash tree. Um, but enjoy these trees while you can, because they're all about to die. Um, so there's something called the emerald ash borer which is a tiny beetle, like what, the size of a grain of rice or a little bigger than that maybe, um, that I think is, I don't know, East Asian or European, I forget which. Asian. Asian, okay. And they are sort of marching across uh, the Great Lakes and um, the Northeast, assisted by people transporting firewood. So when you go to a park and they say, buy the firewood here, don't bring in your own firewood, that's why. Um, it's because other kinds of beetles, but in particular these guys will um, will be, will have, uh, the larvae will be actually, or pupa will be underneath the bark um, in what you might be thinking of burning for your firewood. And if you leave that sitting in the campsite afterwards and don't burn that chunk of wood, then that's going to infect or infest that section of forest. And so that's how they've been jumping around the northeast. Um, and they kill, like, pretty much all of the ash trees they infest unless you treat them. But it's very, but we in Philadelphia have tens of thousands of ash trees probably. You can't treat all of them. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of ash trees. And so the city has made, a, a, has made an effort to A, cut down all of those that are near a, a building or a road or a path. Because you don't want a whole lot of suddenly dead trees shedding big chunks of branches and falling over on people um, or on buildings. 
and then they've picked a few priority ones to actually try to treat. So if they got a really picturesque, beautiful ash tree, we'll try to preserve those, and maybe someday in the near future or, or, or mid-future, we'll, um, we'll have something that can kill off the borers and we can bring back ash trees. I mean, and, and there's hope, you know, that maybe they'll be able to release some parasite or predator someday of the parasitic species of the tree. So then that'll sort of control those and bring them under control so the trees can come back. But we don't have any solutions in our quiver right now that we can deploy. Um, so it's sort of like, I mean, it's, it's the city and a lot of ma land managers have, and foresters have taken this attitude, which is, it, it's sort of like, it's all you can do really. Um, but sort of like plan around the demise of the trees and see what you can do to hold on to a few of them. And I guess the purple box is a monitoring trap. So we don't... So we don't actually have the borers yet in Philadelphia. We expect them sometime soon, and we'll know that they're here when those kinds of traps come up with borers on them. And if you look, um, there's like an ash branch, the lowest ash branch to the right with a whole bunch of ash, some arrows on it. If you look above that into the elm leaves just beyond it, that is the... Baltimore Royale. Yes, the Baltimore Royale, that's what he found. Nice eye. All right. Baltimore Orioles really love trees over water, so this is perfect for them. What do they eat? They eat uh, insects and fruit. Okay. Yeah. So mulberries behind I was going to say, we got mulberries and we have insects, so. Let's check got, feeding the young or something. Yeah, it's a young feeding, yeah. young, it's a female feeding young in the nest. Yeah, so we're going to, so we're going to ride a little while now without much stopping and talking. Um, just we're just checking the time and 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 how long we're taking. I think I see the mail. Um, cool. Over in that Hi, podcast listeners. Um, I had forgotten to hit record on a stop that we made along Lewis Street, uh, just south of Richmond. Um, we had come down Castor, cut over on Richmond. Uh, to go around the the sort of inland or north side of the northeast wastewater treatment facility and then down Lewis alongside the treatment facility along um, to to the north of us a railroad track embankment uh, that is covered with a whole variety of exotic plants um, bugwort uh, white campion some melanthus or tree of heaven popping up here and there, a whole mix of accidentally or intentionally imported plants, um, along with some natives. There are some, there are a few patches of uh, common milkweed growing in there, for example. Earlier in the morning, before the ride started, Tony and I had flipped a brown snake, which I put in a jar and was able to show off for the that I was able to show off for the riders who are with us, and then we released it where I found it. We also flipped a grove snail. This is a, a nice boldly striped um, snail uh, that is native to Europe uh, and has some you know, very nice yellow and brown stripes. I had first seen one in Cincinnati when I was looking for Kirtland snakes in a vacant lot in Cincinnati. And then um, Tony commented that he used to see them in South Philly, but I haven't seen them many other places around Philadelphia. So it made for an interesting conversational topic. And then we rode uh, down Lewis and um, over to the to the mouth of Frankfurt Creek, where it 
dumps out into the Delaware River. So this is the Frankfurt Creek, the creek we've been following after it's changed names and become the Frankfurt Creek. So just as you come down closer and closer to the river, you have more little feeders kind of feeding into that creek. So that's it's the natural kind of way things kind of build. Towards, it's, it's a dendritic pattern, a lot like a tree, where you've got these fine little branches of smaller creeks feeding the main trunk. And most of those creeks are on the ground now. Well, so this, this is considered a one tributary to the Delaware River. So we're a sub-watershed to the greater Delaware River watershed. And this is where it's tidal. This is where it's tidal up to Frankfurt Ave that we passed a few, maybe like a mile and a half back. Yeah. Like that. All right. So if you ever wanted to see the old remnant of Creek, it's on the other side of uh, Bridesburg. That's what's kind of the other boundary for Bridesburg, up by the Frankfurt Arsenal. That's where the mouth, the mouth of the creek originally outlet. Until they redug this tunnel. So they dug this straight. And the idea was because the water was so polluted, everything was kind of shotgunned here after a rainstorm. So it flooded really bad and the mills right along the creek would just constantly get flooded. So they just kind of kept coming to local government saying, we got to do something about this. And they eventually decided, hey, we're just going to try to creek shot to the river. And also, you know, that helps you get boats up to the Frankfurt, Frankfurt Ave section. Yep. building here? So W here, the water department treatment plant is right here. This is the city's big kind of municipal home base for a lot of stuff. So all of the stormwater uh, pipes and everything that outlet, they're making their way to this treatment plant. And we're going to see the other side of it in a minute. Yeah. yeah. So the there's midges that live here because the water's still there's still some like the breakdown of the the bacteria breaking yeah. down the, the poop is causing some warmth and some midges can live here year round and they probably are and the uh, um, so there's a so birds winter here that normally don't like there's always there's like a couple hundred roughing swallows that winter here occasionally some cave swallows will show up and then there's a little often in the winter bird senses just find like different warblers that should be much farther south i, I have found this one of the the neatest yeah, urban wildlife stories we've got in philadelphia i mean it's it's one thing where you have like robins or, or a bird like that expand its range a little bit to like follow bird feeders and whatnot um it seems like a different thing entirely when a bird would ordinarily be flying thousands of miles to Mexico and Central America and instead decides to stay the whole winter. So from the wastewater treatment plant, we rode our bikes down along the Delaware River about a mile to the General Pulaski Park. And from General Pulaski Park, we were able to observe um, ospreys sitting on their nest on a light post at the edge of the river and also a bald eagle flying by which was then promptly harassed by a couple of red-tailed hawks.
hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Urban Wildlife Podcast in the Field. Uh, again, thanks to the bike exploration people. That's Hidden City and Spoke Magazine. Many thanks to Robin Irisari, our podcast best friend in the whole world, um, for teaming up with us on this wonderful bike tour of Matukani, or rather of the Tukoni Creek and the urban Philadelphia beyond the creek. Again, if you do like the podcast, please leave us a rating and some comments on your podcast platform of choice, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or something else. Please also follow us on Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast. Follow us on Facebook. You can also drop us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. And of course, if you see something really cool, please record a little note about it on your phone and then email us the file, or you can give us a call at 267-603-3219. Again, 267-603-3219. Thanks. (laughs) 